Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I think we're ready to start the show and let the slaughter begin. I'm George Chen, and you're listening to Sub Doc, a show about the world's documentary film. Today I'm talking to the team behind the Kids in the Hall, Comedy Punks, a career-spanning story of a comedian sketch comedy group that burst onto the international scene at the start of the 90s. They just premiered their new sketch series on Amazon Prime, and this documentary drops on Friday, May 20th, also on Amazon Prime. I spoke with the team behind the doc, executive producer Paul Myers, producer Nick McKinney, and director Reg Hartman. Myers wrote the official Kids in the Hall biography, One Dumb Guy, and is a writer based in the Bay Area. McKinney is a New York-based producer and performer who is also in the Canadian sketch show The Vacant Lot. Toronto director and editor Reg Hartema has a big music background and also made the documentary Super Duper Alice Cooper. I grew up on the Kids in the Hall, so it's heartwarming to see them get this wide recognition four decades into their story. The film is great, even if you're new to the Kids in the Hall. It's got a lot of heart, and it's about these really complicated and beautiful friendships. And my conversation with Paul, Reg, and Nick coming up after this. There's nothing in show business more exhausting than sketch comedy. We would do television, we would do tours, we would just never stop. Get, get that right. You know, Bruce and I started spitting at each other. We all had problems understanding that we were part of a group that was bigger than we were. Basically for me it was like, I need to do this. This might be the last thing I ever do. It was a fairly high probability that Scott was going to die. And I cuddled him, cradled him. And I said, you're not going to die. No one understands me as well as those four. No one. The Kids in the Hall is a love story. It's the, the four worst people you could ever be forced to love for 40 years. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. 
Figure Lending LLC DBA Figure. Equal Opportunity Lender. NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. I am Reg Harkema, and I'm the director of The Kids in the Hall Comedy Punks. Uh, Nick McKinney, I'm the executive producer and producer of The Kids in the Hall Comedy Punks. I'm Paul Myers. I'm an executive producer, and I wrote the book that kind of inspired the whole thing called uh, One Dumb Guy. And I just, I did just pick up your book at the library, so I'm, I'm, oh, reading, thank you. I'm reading the book, and I realized I, this section of photos in the middle... I recognize all these flyers and stuff. And like, I realized like you, so you did a lot of footwork with all these flyers and, and stuff early, you know, I guess a couple of years back. Um, what, when uh, did you guys start thinking that you should turn the book into a film or, or that the book should, would be good source material to make a documentary? I, you know, I'll throw to the other guys. I'll, I'll start by telling the, the genesis of me with the book. So I wrote this book and as I'm starting it, I've known Nick for a few years. And I said, uh, I, I, I think I'd heard that Nick was going to do a documentary. And I said, just so you know, I'm not going to do a documentary, just so you know. And uh, but we met in New York and we talked about pooling resources and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you help me. I help you. And, you know, and Nick was very helpful. And uh, I was very like, you know, and then I got a bunch of offers after the book came out to do a documentary. And we started getting and, and people were actually bidding on this thing. And I'm like, wow, this is great. And I went to Nick and I said, this train is leaving the station. So Nick said, hold on. And then he said, let's, you know, he found Blue Ant. And then, and then it was like, okay, this is, this is the best karma for the whole thing is because we could do it together. And so I'd done all my thing and he'd, he'd been doing his things for years to, to get towards this film. So then we pooled our resources and started having meetings and that's how we met Reg. So I hope that that sort of bridges how to get to Reg and Nick. <laughs> okay, that definitely does. Nick, um, what was the work you were doing? You were you already been thinking about this in some capacity? Oh yeah, and, and I mean, I've been thinking about it for a long time, and then <clears throat> kind of felt like I was in a position. So I gave myself a, in 2015 when I found out the kids are going on tour um, out of my own pocket. Basically, I sort of gave myself a budget to go film the tour uh... in Toronto and New York, um, and also uh, make a a deal with the kids to have the exclusive rights to make a doc with them. Um, and that's kind of a process of herding cats. I don't know if you've met any of the kids, but trying to get the five of them to agree on anything is a bit of a thing. So, you know, did probably four or five days of shooting around the tour, spent the legal money, and then I went, okay, I've hit my cap, and I went back to the real world. And right around then was when Paul and I started talking Um yeah, it was like it was like a year before you came to New York with the book, right? I want to say. Um, yeah, I mean, we started talking in earnest about doing this documentary when I was doing a promotional at the uh, at, at the Canadian consulate in right. uh, New York, and Dave Foley was there with me and my brother Mike, and you were there, and you said, "Let's have a serious discussion about this," and I said, "Great." So that's yeah, yeah about a year before. Yeah. So then, as Paul was saying, he let me know that he had some offers in Canada. Um, and I think I, I 
pressed him to sort of what the nature of the offers were. And I, I can't remember. I think I said, give me a week, give me a week and I'll double that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I've been doing work with Blue Ant, who very kindly produced this and financed this for us and went to them. And they were very happy, you know, because they'd always been enthused about the project. And certainly Paul's book coming out was like a great, whatever you call that, like motivating factor. Uh, so all of a sudden it became real. Then we were really gaining all this momentum and we were about to go into production just around the same time the kids were going into production on their new Amazon series and then COVID hit. So everything got forestalled for a year, which gave us the chance to really search for a director. And we talked to quite a few, but I think when we saw Reg's film, uh, Super Duper Alice Cooper, we just, we, everyone involved from the, the EPs at Blewant to Paul and myself sort of went, yeah, that's the guy. He'll get it. He'll he, he know what to do. So that's a good throw to you, Reg. Yeah. <laughs> I remember what the question was. <laughs> I guess it's sort of how the puzzle came together, right? Yeah. Oh, well, the, what's, what's interesting for me is, is that like, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in your position, George, uh, just through the Q and A's I've done with these guys at South by Southwest. In these interviews, I and myself am learning how this whole thing came together. Because <laughs> I came in once the, the book had been written and footage mm -hmm. had been shot and the pitch deck had been done. And in fact, you know, even these, these guys came up with a, a pitch deck and I had a color palette that I was like, that's the color palette of the doc. So there was a, a lot of groundwork done. <laughs> some fonts were chosen for you. Some fonts. We had it all, man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but, we uh, actually yeah, I had more Michael Chishin from uh, Blue Ant Media from 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 working right. on a, a Guy Madden project together, like you know, back in the '90s, and uh, she brought me to these two guys, and uh, um, we uh, uh, hit it off pretty well. You know, there's this negotiation, you know, back and forth for a couple of weeks, and part of it was like, you know, are, are they weirded out because my name's Reg because of that sketch where it's like, two Reg. Know, they killed two Reg. They they killed their uh, friend Reg. Easy to love, hard to kill. Yeah, you know. Right, Can I just say that I didn't know much like you're learning, Reg. I didn't know about the Guy Madden connection until you started talking about it, and you know the full circle karma of it is. Kevin now lives in Winnipeg and Mark was in uh, the saddest music in the world, right? The yeah. Guy Madden film. So, so there's yeah. like, uh, it's like, it's all swirling. Of course, all Canadians know each other anyway. That's the well, thing. Well, literally when I saw Reg on your IMDb that you worked a lot with Don McKellar, I was like, Canadians do all know each other. That's crazy. <laughs> I'm like, I was like, oh, last night. I love that film. Like you worked on that. I haven't too, talked to Don in five years, but uh, <laughs> I do know. I, I interviewed Don at the Whistler Film Festival. So there you go. Cause that's, you know, even a connection there. And I'm sure Nick. I, I, I worked with Don on 32 short films about Glenn Gould and he was in The Herd that I did with Peter Lynch. So yeah, it's a very incestuous country. Don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying, I've never been to Toronto. I'd love to go. I will say, I did get to see the Kids in the Hall live tour in 94 in San Francisco. Oh, 94. Yeah. Oh, that's and I, I managed to um, underage somehow interview Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet when mm -hmm. they played in San Jose at the Cactus Club. Like, oh. I think I just went and watched mm. their sound check and like interviewed one of them. And it's Brian, been a long Brian time. Brian Connolly did an interview? <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, it, it, it might have been can't Reed. Be Brian. Can't, it can't be Brian. I, yeah, it might have been Reed. I, I, I literally was in high school. Oh, I can't Reed. remember anymore. But um, yeah, so I've been a fan of the show forever. I was very excited to see 
the film. Um, congratulations on the film, everyone. And it's going to be at Hot Docs uh, in next week, May. And then it's going to be on Amazon May 20th. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Next week, May 3rd at Hot Docs. And, and um, I, I will say uh, that's maybe the, I want to say that's the most Lauren interview I've ever seen. How long? And I, uh, Paul, I heard an interview where you said that you only got like 15 minutes with Lauren or something like that. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I got, I got. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was told it becomes that thing where you think you're getting 25 minutes, and then he gets called away by Marty. You know, like that. That's kind of what happened. Um, so he literally was he was doing the Maya Rudolph show with Martin Short. I think that's yeah. It was Martin Marty and Maya. Yeah, they called it. And. In the middle of it, he goes, oh, Paul, uh, we'll have to pick this up again. Uh, Marty's calling. And I was like, I mean, I mean, I, if it was an improv, he did a great job. But I, 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 yeah, well, actually, I actually did say Martin Short, right? Yeah. Martin Short, because he mentioned M Maya. And I went, oh, Martin Short, right? Not Martin yeah, Scorsese. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know why I asked him, because you wouldn't ask Lauren anything like that. Yeah. No, you got to tell me why you're canceling. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, Lauren is. And when, by the way, when these guys, I wasn't in the room for that interview that for this mm -hmm. film. I was in awe that they were actually in his office. <laughs> tell, you, yeah. you guys tell me what, what yeah. was that like? Yeah, tell us about that. Well, that well, was had, I wasn't there either. I was remember yeah. I was on the Zoom, uh, Paul vaping. That's right. That's right. Turn the video so, yeah, on. And Nick, that's right. Nick, <laughs> Nick got that interview. That's right. So yeah, I mean, early on, we went to Broadway Video early on. Actually, I think I was talking to them even before Blue Ant came on the scene. Um, <clears throat> Because I've, you know, I've had a long relationship with with Broadway Video, and um, uh, knew we were going to want their archive. So we started those conversations a long time ago, and they really became champions of the film. I mean, they were very generous with the rates they gave us for a lot of archive we use, um, making some connections for us for interviews, and getting us Lauren for I think it was two hours. Wow. Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> and and. And a looser Lauren than I've ever seen interviewed as well. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. That's I, really striking in the film. I feel like that's like it felt like a a he really wanted to talk about it, which I think is rare that he wants to talk about anything. And I think I you know he obviously was like a a big force in their career. And th th I learned a lot about like how much he like actually like put them up and staked them essentially. Um, yeah. to, to become like the thing that they became. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a legacy thing for Lauren as well. Um, you know, Saturday Night Live, everybody knows Saturday Night Live and that he's the, the, the MNOS grease behind the curtain about all the decisions. Um, but I think Kids in the Hall, well, they've never had this kind of light shined on them from a documentary perspective before. So I think he was very happy to be on the record. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say he was sort of glowing, which, you know, I was prepared for a fairly diffident, like, he'll sort of produce the Kids in the Hall sort of thing. Um, and uh, just everybody falls into that imitation, isn't it? Mine's somewhere between your brother's impression and my brother's impression. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, so, yeah, so um, he's got a reputation as being a hard ass interview because we, we, I, we had Nick actually ask him to say stuff, you know, there's yeah. some certain setup lines and he was like, can you say uh, thank you, Mr. McCulloch, because Bruce had said, uh, oh no, you're welcome, Mr. McCulloch, because Bruce had said, thank you're welcome. You, yeah. More Michaels and he yeah. did those lines for us. Oh, yeah. okay. I, I remember that scene. Yeah. And, so, and you know, so I think it's so great. Can I just say, I think it's so great in the film 
because you know it's one thing for me to write it in a book, but when I see it in the film and the constant references to the phone calls that were always Lorne Michaels on the other end, he is like, a, you know, like I, a old reference would be the Ziegfeld, the Ziegfeld's in the audience, you know, he's like the guy who can make or break your career. And he shows up at the 11th hour, like four or five times in the film. Like, and it's, it's all, and it's generally Mark taking the call, right? Because he's, because he's an aristocrat, clearly, you know, yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway. So Nick, I you, that was you, neat. yeah, like the, with the Lauren questions, you had, you had something teed up, you had enough teed up for two hours with him. Yeah. I mean, I think, was it two hours, maybe an hour and a half, but it was, it was generous <laughs> from everything I've, I've known about him. Like we'd said an hour and a half, but you know, you do that in this business often and people go, oh, well, like, you know, Paul Fenn, I was like, oh, Marty's on the phone or, yeah. oh, I'm bored. <laughs> I'm not interested. <laughs> no, whatever it is. Um, I've, I've had people beetle out of interviews on all sorts of, you know, premises. So it was really great. I got everything I think we wanted. Yeah, I mean, it was a late interview as well, right? So we kind of sniped like a bunch of stuff. Like we need to get him to say something about this, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. And we're able to focus. Right. So uh, a lot of, were there some interviews that were shot before COVID? I was kind of trying to get an idea of like when things were kind of like put together in terms well, of- Well, Paul and Towel, Paul, Paul Bellini and the Towel, because- Oh yeah, some, shot that I mean, in, uh, a little bit of the stuff I shot in 2015 is in there. Oh, okay. uh, that's right. Not, not very much. There's some B-roll and, and stuff like that, but no, everything was done during COVID with full COVID protocols with- people wiping down interview chairs with, you know, alcohol wipes and everybody getting tested on their way. I mean, it was, and weirdly it all ran really smoothly. And of course you're producing this between three or four different cities over zoom, which surprisingly is pretty efficient. Yeah. I loved it. You know, as, as I, I don't ever want to go into office again. I actually have a strangely more personal relationship with an editor, like being able to face them rather than the back of their head, which would be uh, normally doing an edit. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that. That's a good, that's a really good detail, Red. Uh, yeah, yeah. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I noticed that on the second viewing of this, I realized I, I, the conceit I didn't quite get initially that the, the individual interviews are all in a school, right? Or like they're it's most prominent, I think, with Scott being walking down a, a row of walkers. Yeah, we, we had we had some. So we, well, I'll let Red speak, speak to this more, but just to give you the whole nutshell, we liked the school because of the look, because it was a vintage look. And the first thing we got back from, I think it was Kevin and maybe one other kid was, you're trying to put a kid in a hall. You're trying to put a kid in a hall. And we're like, no, no, it's just like, you know, it's suburbia, it's angst, it's high school. It's all that stuff that you guys, you know, turned into great comedy. You're trying to put a kid in the hall. So we actually had to move Kevin into the theater. Count on my head, count on my head. <laughs> I had this whole thing planned out, right? Because like, like Bruce is, uh, you know, he's an athlete, so he's in the gym. He's in the gym. Art, 
yeah, Mark was uh, a little bit more privileged. So I was going to put him in that private school auditorium where we ended up shooting Dave mm-hmm. and Kevin. But because Dave right. and Kevin didn't want to go in the hall, we had to put them there and then put They're Mark like- in the gym. And I don't, you know, I don't think Mark has even done a push up in his life, right? Like he's not an athlete, but the gym and his oh, on the swim team. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you get my point though. Yeah. Uh, um, and then, uh, um, you know, but strangely it, it kind of, uh, um, helped to, uh, define the, 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 not the camps, but the kind of group, how they came together because Kevin and Dave were in the same place, Mark and Bruce who started out in Calgary in the same place. And then the fifth member, uh, um, Scott, who ended up taking the, uh, hallway shot, um, felt, felt a little separate from those, uh, <laughs> Two groups and, he, and there was this amazing moment where you know he's like talking about you know spoiler alert the school shooting and and he like looks yeah, around yeah. and says took place in a school like this so, you know it's a little bit chilling that was like that was definitely news i didn't grow up knowing about that shooting at all i i, I think of you know like school shootings as being a more recent phenomenon than that but especially in canada yeah. that's like one of the first ones right yeah. Canadians, oh, are shocked to, Canadians are shocked to learn that too, by the way, because I don't think a lot of Canadians talked about it much. Yeah. yeah. And our story producer, Martha Kehoe, was in the second one. I remember actually oh, right. Scott yeah. having a conversation where they sort of worked out right. what dates had it, it had happened to each of them. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely learned, I feel like everyone individually could have been like, if this was a five part series, you could definitely have done like an hour on everyone. But uh, I found like a lot of the through line of, and something you pointed out, which I hadn't thought about consciously so much is uh, like Scott, a lot of stuff has, happens to Scott in the last, you know, 40, 50 years. So he, he's, he was, that happened when he was a kid, he was in a school shooting in Canada. Uh, his, his brother died and he was diagnosed with cancer during the shooting of uh, Death Comes to Town. Does yeah. that sound yeah. about right? Yeah. No, his brother, then, his brother died during brain candy. Oh, during brain candy. Okay. Yeah, and then he was diagnosed. Yeah. He, he had cancer during death himself. I also, did you guys see the uh, the Too Soon comedy after 9-11 film? Because Scott starts that film off too. Because that's I'm about this one-man show he was going to do. <laughs> yeah. I know. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, that's the thing. There's other tragedies and stuff that Scott, that we don't even we, deal with. We covered film. that in the book. Yeah, we covered oh, yeah, that in the book, the book because up. it it was kind of it was something that I, I I was really fascinated with because I had seen Scott on the streets of Toronto in two thousand and yeah late two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's right. As soon as I could get to Toronto, I was visiting Toronto and I saw Scott and said, "Well, I was there." Like it was like, and he was telling me the whole story and uh, about his boyfriend at the time and and it was uh, you know and how he he rankled he'd uh, angered Saddam Hussein by right. being in this film called Uncle Sodom. And then, and then the irony is it gets flipped on his head because suddenly he's the guy making fun of 9-11, they think. And, and like suddenly he's the, he's the bad guy. Right. And his uh, house got attacked, just, right? Like didn't they, yeah. they, yeah. they attacked his house? Yeah. yeah. So mean, Scott's Scott paid his such a life. Like, you know, what, yeah. you know what, what most people would call like Douglas Sirkian melodrama, he calls cinema verite. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even get to Mouth Congress, which I just like heard the Mouth Congress for the first time. Oh, oh yeah. Um, I also love having Paul Bellini talking so much oh. in this. I'm like, I've never yeah. heard any interviews with Paul prior to this. And like, I knew he was a writer, but I didn't really understand his relationship to everyone uh, in, mm. in the show. It seemed like he was, him and him and Scott were like a writing team, right? Is that sound? He's right? the Scott Wrangler. Friends, they call him the Scott Wrangler, you know? 
Yeah, they went to film school together and uh, all the, a, a bunch of the early film footage of Scott that we used to set him up, uh, Paul shot. And then, uh, you know, being a filmmaker, he saw Scott when he performing with the kids and just decided, decided to start shooting. Nice. So yeah, you know, like a lot of the, I mean, I can't remember if it's 70 or 80, 90 hours of footage that Bellini had that ranged between like 1980 and the present day. He's been pointing the camera at Scott and then the kids for that long. So that we wouldn't have the film we have if it wasn't for Paul. Like we'd right. have something, but you would, you know, yeah. that deep footage. Yeah. yeah. A lot of that. He'll be the one with the iPhone at the premiere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Nick, I wanted to ask you, cause like, I didn't know a lot about the, the, the McKinney family background that's brought up kind of a lot. Um, you, you guys grew up going like living in a bunch of different countries. Uh, and mm -hmm. you, are you the, you're, what's the order? Is, I'm the you youngest. The, you're the youngest. Okay. So, I'm the youngest of three. So yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that? How did you, did everyone just ended up in Calgary? That seems like a strange place to end up. Oh no, no. So only Mark did. Um, Mark ended up in Calgary. My sister ended up in Toronto. I was still like so when Mark was in. Mark's six years older than me, so I was finishing the process of dropping out of high school um, in Ottawa. And weirdly, I was simultaneously was I started doing improv in Ottawa. About the same time Mark started doing doing it in Calgary. And I remember him coming home one summer and saying, like, hey, I found this really cool thing I've been doing. I was like, oh, I've been doing that too. Um, and, you know, we came from a pretty funny family. Like, as I always say, my sister's actually the funniest of the three of us, but she's a Catholic school board teacher. Um, <laughs> but still, the her... <clears throat> I don't know. Her sense of the absurd is deep and rich and very funny. Yeah, uh, Paul, I feel like in the book, you sort of mentioned like this fact that they lived all over the place informed like this sort of ability to pick It's up something characters. that Mark says, yeah. Yeah. Mark talks about the fact that, you know, whereas maybe the other guys had more of a directly dysfunctional sort of family life, um, Mark's thing, I think, and Nick can speak to this because you were there, but Mark, Mark does go on a lot about the idea that um, you make friendships and then you move away. So you don't really have a lot of, you know, a lot of like school buddies that you go through every grade with. On the other hand, you get to learn new dialects everywhere you go. So, so you know, Mark's ear for dialects was great. So, so you also yeah, become sort of a, you also become sort of a quick study, you know, because you you're landing in a new school halfway through the year in a different country, and it's like, and humor is a pretty good entree, misbehaving in humor, you know. Um, I do want to point out that Nick speaks of his comedy. I knew Nick first through the vacant lot who are uh, who were one of the great comedy troops of Toronto. Just I just want to say that because I think maybe uh, Nick, I mean, Nick is very humble. And uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, Nick was in the vacant lot and they were so funny. And, you know, Paul Greenberg and Vito and all these guys, and they were really, really funny. And so I remember thinking that was neat that, you know, there's lots of funny in the McKinney family. So, he, you know, your comedy, I guess, is my point for the audience here. You know, yeah, your right. stuff, you know, we were saying before before recording that you also worked on The Awful Truth, uh, the Michael Moore show back in the day. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Reg, like you've is this your first major comedy thing you've worked on. You've done a ton of music stuff, it looks like. Yeah. Um, in documentary, I mean, I don't think I've ever really, you know, I mean, I've 
uh, edited uh, as an editor, I edited Goon, <laughs> which was like a, uh, you know, romantic uh, comedy of a, a hockey brawler. And I edited the second FUBAR film, which was like, you know, uh, uh, lots of improv comedy. So I have a, 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 an ear and a recognition of the rhythms and what makes something mm-hmm. funny. But uh, in terms of an overt uh, comedic approach as a director, this is definitely the first thing. I mean, I've always like, you know, tried to infuse the work I do with like sort of dry humor, you know, and mm. part of what I like about the kids is that their humor can be kind of dry, especially like someone like, you know, Dave Foley. Yeah. Right? yeah. Completely dry all over. Uh, um, mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and, and that I think, you know, when we talked earlier about what Kevin was afraid of, I think my approach to comedy was actually help the film because I think he was afraid of someone come funny trying to out funny the kids. And I was mm. never going to do that. Yeah. I think that I think one thing we all like immediately connected on was that we also looked at this in a way like you're making a film about a rock band, like you're making a film about a bunch of guys who operate on that level with that kind of dynamic. Um, but certainly also, I think we all have the instinct, which unfortunately, like a lot of the people who've made docs about Monty Python, for example, don't have, which is don't try and make your film funnier than the comedy you're covering. Um, and it speaks for itself. And I think approaching it that way allowed for that really human, you know, touching story to come out alongside all that comedy, which if you were really going in and saying, you know, you gotta be funny every single beat, da, 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 then you'd be, you know, you'd have a clip show. Right. I wanna right. address something I want to address something that Nick just said and, and Reg said is the you know, Reg comes from like the, the Alice Cooper film was one of my favorite films about Alice Cooper I've ever seen. In fact, it's one of the best rock documentaries I've ever seen. And I just learned so much about Alice Cooper because you didn't go, you didn't go, uh, hey, check it out. He's got a snake. It was more like, check it out. He's got a strangely religious past and a weird, you know, need to fit in with uh, and rebel against things. But he's actually <laughs> punk rock and he's actually from Detroit. And, but he's actually from Arizona and he's an, ath- an athlete. And all, and all these things that were really telling the story of Alice Cooper that weren't, you know, look at he's got a snake. And, and the second part is that we're both rock and roll guys, uh, Reg and I. And I write mostly about music and rock and roll. But I did make what an exception in my life. To- and, and of course, yeah. Nick, is, Nick is chopped yeah. over. And, and Nick, Nick is all rock and roll. And no, but my, my point is I knew this going in that, that Reg was a rock and roll guy. And I am a guy who write, I've, I've only written one book about comedy and, uh, and it's the kids in the hall. So for me, this entree in to work with a, a, essentially a rock and roll director and Nick, I'm not dissing you. Come on. But, uh, it's fine. I don't have the, I, 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 I I don't have the cool rock and roll hair that you guys do. I get it. Hey, hair, I, I mean, hair all together. So, you know, but, but, uh, you know, but you know, I just thought that was a neat thing too. And, I, and, it, and Nick, you just articulated what I like about it too, is that we didn't try to make it a film where we were being funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I, I learned a lot about the Canadian suburbs and that everyone's dad has an alcohol problem. Uh, that's something I, <laughs> I think there was also of the time. Uh, uh, would you, I've heard this, I don't remember who, who said this. I remember someone at one point saying they thought that what is, uh, there's a Canadian sense to kids in the hall. It's like there's sort of this weird little brother of America sense to Canadian humor. Have you heard this anywhere? Does that, yeah. does that ring a bell? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that. I, I've, I've heard it. I don't agree with it, but I've you don't heard agree it. With it. No. Where's the, where's I mean, the I think that 
I think what sets the kids in the hall apart is everybody else, whether in the States or Canada, was either doing heavily regional comedy mm-hmm. or doing heavily drawn, you know, topical comedy. So stuff that was evergreen for a week or two weeks. And the kids kind of stepped back and looked at their lives and looked at themselves and looked at the stuff that they were seeing psychiatry, you know, psychology, you know, in therapy for, which was their alcoholic dads and the, you know, the fucking horrors of growing up in the suburbs and dead end jobs and all that kind of stuff. And that's why it's evergreen. So I don't think it, I don't think it's, I actually think it's opposite to being imitative of the United States. Nobody in the States was doing anything like that. Right. And then suddenly 10 years later, a whole lot of people in the States were doing things like that. Yeah. I I think, I do think like all these sketches aged have aged pretty well. And I think what what I interpreted that the little brother comment was, or maybe not little brother, but more like there was this a thought of like you could look at things from a slightly different perspective than uh, oh, that was yeah. I was viewing it like that. But I, I mean, yeah, I, I guess it. I phrased it in a way that could be like a little bit like a diminutive. Well, I think the things that the kids looked at were as true in the U.S. as they were in Canada. And yes, I do think that Canadians in general have a good social distance on sort of pop culture because so much of what we got growing up was coming through the airwaves over the border, you know, from the U S so we knew U S news. We knew what the sacred cows were. We knew what was on TV. Da, da, da. We, knew, we knew what the music was, but it wasn't ours. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have a distance to be able to, to take the piss. There's a broader area too, which is in Canada, at least when I grew up, I mean, I live in California now, but one of the things that I remember was we used to talk a lot about exportability in our arts. And the kids in the hall struck me as one of the first, you know, you either leave Canada to go work in the States or England or something, yeah. or you do or you do work that is, let's try and get syndicated from Toronto, this thing that is broadly, and we'll, we'll change the names of everything to, to say Chicago cops, you know? And, and, and they just didn't even, they didn't even hide it. They were out of the closet Canadians is what I'm right, trying to say. Yeah. You know, they, yeah, yeah. they outed themselves immediately as Canadians. Mm-hmm. And that's what the kids in the hall did. They just said, yeah, we're Canadian people. One of us is gay. Let's go. You know, and it was to me, that was refreshing. They didn't they didn't censor. They didn't think to make it a big deal. You know, I get the impression that uh, American fans who are into the kids in the hall like the Canadianness of it. You know, like, I, 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 Canada's think, like some I, I, band that no one knows of it. Yeah, I think we've been we fetishized it a little bit in a weird way. Yeah. I mean, like I'm Armisen like, said, I, yeah. Armisen said that he thought the Canadian cops were like one of his favorite things that, that you know, the two cops sketches. And it, he, he sort of said just the fact that they were so Canadian. I said I hadn't even occurred to me. I'm talking to him and I go, right. well, you're right. They're not they're not Chicago or New York police. They're they're definitely yeah. Toronto cops. I've met those guys, you know, like, you know, nice. so for sure. Nice. Um, well, thanks so much for talking to me about this film. It's great to have you guys all on here. I learned so much watching this if you're even sort of a passing fan i'd say you should definitely watch the documentary um, even if you don't know them at all watch the if you don't know them at all <laughs> like I, I think you learn a lot i i it really struck me when i think about them like like there, there's a visual style in top of everything else as well like they they're sort of like the film grain like the intros like the music there's so much like it's a whole universe unto itself and it's really nice to see it given this sort of tribute. So um, yeah, I really enjoyed the film. I really love the group. I know you're not really involved in the, the re- I noticed there was some foot behind the scenes footage, 
of the the show that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So you were well, that was some footage you were around for when they were doing some of that because oh, I saw masks and stuff. Yeah, well, you know, Nick, Nick uh, me and the, the producer and our uh, Blue Ant people set up, you know, they'd been liaisoning with Amazon and they set up like a day for me and a DOP to go down there and shoot some stuff. That's a day that Eddie Izzard showed up, actually. And, oh, you know, that's not what the Eddie Izzard is. Yeah. Yeah, oh. and so that that kind of blew me away because I'm not a comedy person, right? And I was right. just, like, you know, immediately struck by Eddie Izzard and also- stand-ups after that. That was that was a great scene. I will also call out that I saw King Buzzo from the Melvins in one of the uh, one of the. Yeah, uh, right. We were it. trying. We were trying very hard to get. Him. <laughs> yeah. You remember yeah, when I was in saw, LA? We saw that in the footage, and we wanted to get an interview with him. I was I was in Los Angeles doing interview. I think it was like when I was doing Eric McCormick and oh yeah and uh, Fred Armisen oh yeah and Reggie yeah that trip. But Reg, Reg and I were back channeling like around all of production. I was like, okay, I've, I've got Buzzo's Instagram. I think I'm trying to reach him. I said, I'll, I'll blow off any of these people. Together. Did he write back? Did you get, did you get in touch with him? And he didn't no. write back? Uh, he oh, did, man. but like way, way late. late. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he was, he wasn't even in the city. He was in Texas, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, a lot of great uh, interviews you had with people like Reggie Watts, Eddie Izzard, uh, Armisen, Julie Klausner, Janine Garofalo. Klausner, it's like, yeah. it's a, uh, all, all killers all around. So uh, Louis Black, that was a great little interlude mm-hmm. uh, there. So, oh, can I yeah. just say, these guys did a great job of, uh, of finding some people that I hadn't even really heard of. I didn't know Mae Martin's work until this. Oh yeah, Mae and I, I now think Mae Martin is one of the greatest comedy talents out there right now, great, and great and a great lawyer. actor. Mm-hmm. And I I was like, wow, Mae Martin. Um, now I know who Mae Martin is. This is awesome, you know. Or, or, so that was yeah, cool. Baroness von Sketch, uh, like uh, people from that. So Ken Whalen was in it. Yeah, yeah. right on. Um, so yeah, uh, the movie is Kids in the Hall Comedy Punks. We didn't even get into the punk stuff too much, but you know, another time we'll. We'll talk all the punk stuff, but God you know. save the we'll queen. be back next week to talk about punk. <laughs> <laughs> After you watch this, we'll we'll do it again. All right, writing it in my queue, having an average weekend. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, we have like the rights to that, right? Yeah, we have the rights to that song. Sure, why not? Go for it. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Subtalk at subtalkpodcast.com. Our theme music was written by David Siegel. And our executive producer is Will Scoble. Donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash podcast. If you want to help out in other ways, please share this show with us. Find Paco and George's comedy gigs on the About Us page on our site. Subtalk is by Doc Fans for Doc Fans. So if you want to advertise, got a film, or opinions to share, hit us up. Email us at subdocpodcast at gmail.com.